Amen. I'm in a series of messages in January and most of February entitled Blindsided. Things that happened to us that we did not see coming. There are certain things in life that we just know are going to happen. And then there are things that happen to us that we did not even, it wasn't on our radar to even consider. And I want to talk about seven attitudes or behaviors or seven mindsets that creep into our life and we may not even be aware of them until we're smacked in the face. And once we're aware of them, God brings it to our attention or a message like this or something goes on in our home. Now we have to deal with them. And the first one that I talked about two weeks ago was cynicism. Nobody wakes up and says, I think I'll be a cynical person that will be a wet blanket wherever I go. Spreading doom and gloom everywhere. No one wakes up and says that. We all start off with this sense of hope and optimism. But you know, the longer you live in life, the more life experience you have. Solomon said this in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, is that the more you know, sometimes the more cynical you become. And God's Word has some very specific things to say about cynicism with regard to you cannot be all that God calls you to be. You cannot live the Christ-like life in its fullness and still hang on to cynicism because cynicism has as its root this sense of skepticism a doubtful spirit, is anybody really operating out of good motives and you just go around life thinking that everybody has you know, their best interest at heart and they're always operating out of their own self-interest. And we've seen enough of life to prove it. But God is not a cynic at all. God at his heart has hope and believes in people. The second thing, Pastor Drew talked last week about a life of compromise. Nobody starts off wanting to compromise their values and their ethics. But somewhere along the way, we'll be challenged. And there are quiet moments in our life that nobody else sees or nobody else knows about. Little decisions we make to click here or there on a computer. Little decisions we make about attitudes in our heart that are not public in any way, but we know we've slipped and we've compromised. God has a better plan. This morning I want to talk to you about connection and disconnection. God made us to connect with Him in a profound and vital way so that we can thrive spiritually, but he's also made us to connect horizontally with other people. And yet, most of us in this room are disconnected in some area of our life, and we're not thriving. What does it feel like to be disconnected? Well, it's a sense of loss. 
It's a sense of despair. It's a sense of disorientation. And there's a sense in which you're not part of your tribe. You haven't found your people. And when you find your people, it's like slipping in and coming home. But when you haven't found your people, there's this sense of rootlessness. People come to church to connect. People come to church to connect with the Lord, and they come to church to connect with other people. Listen to this. People leave the church because they don't feel connected. We are living in an age of disconnection. Did you know that over the last 25 years, sociologists have been studying this issue of disconnection very closely? And here's what they found. Over the last 25 years, people, by and large, are coming to social gatherings less. And people, by and large, are not knowing their neighbors in their neighborhood the way they used to 25, 35, 45 years ago. Here's what we do today. We drive in our driveway, we open up the garage door, we slide our car in, we close the garage door, and we're in our houses for the evening. Even within our own neighborhood, we've joked about this. There's another uh, Christian in our neighbor, uh, neighborhood across the way. We live in a cul-de-sac, and his name is Jairo and, and Lindsay, and they're wonderful Christians, and they go to a, a local church here. And so, you know, Jairo and I have joked, hey, see you in April. It's cold out there. You know what I'm saying? But because of this growing sense of disconnection, what ends up happening is our culture experiences stress fractures. For example, the opioid crisis is the latest stress fracture. There are a thousand people a day that show up in ERs for drug overdoses. Drug overdoses are by and large about disconnecting because people who are vitally connected don't do drugs. Did you know that? People who have connection problems, many of them turn to drugs or some other form. There is more anti-anxiety medication than ever before. And people are busier than ever before and we're running, running, running. And as a result, we have all kinds of disconnection within the family. The Bible has a tremendous amount to say about the importance of our vertical and our horizontal connection. And that's what today is about. So I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. We're going to be looking at our old friend... The writer of Ecclesiastes, most Bible scholars, most ancient rabbis said that it was Solomon that wrote Ecclesiastes. Nobody's 100% sure, but let's go with Solomon. But I'm going to ask you to stand, and as we look at God's Word together, I want you to read a Scripture passage in a way that maybe you've not seen before. So Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Remember, Ecclesiastes is all about a cynical spirit. Solomon is totally cynical, but he probably doesn't even know it. We're just seeing it ooze out of him. So chapter 2, verse 1. 
Now I said to myself, come on, let's try pleasure. Let's look for the good things in life. But I found that this too was meaningless. So I said, laughter is silly. What good does it do to seek pleasure? After much thought, I decided to cheer myself with wine. He's medicating. And while still seeking wisdom, I clutched at foolishness. You ever done anything foolish? Right? You ever done anything that you knew was foolish and you went and did it anyway? That's foolishness. In this way, I tried to experience the only happiness that most people find during their brief life in this world. I also tried to find meaning by building huge homes for myself, by planting beautiful vineyards. I made gardens and parks, filling them with all kinds of fruit trees. I built reservoirs to collect the water to irrigate my many flourishing groves. I bought slaves, both men and women, and others were born into my household. I also owned large herds and flocks, more than any of the kings who had lived in Jerusalem before me. I collected great sums of silver and gold, the treasure of many kings and provinces. I hired wonderful singers, both men and women, and had many beautiful concubines. I had everything a man could desire. So I became greater than all who lived in Jerusalem before me, and my wisdom never failed me. Anything I wanted, I would take. I denied myself no pleasure. I even found great pleasure in hard work, a reward for all of my labors. But as I looked around at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless, like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. Let's bow our heads. Holy Spirit, as, um, you know, we, we oftentimes pray when we're together like this. We take ancient words from an ancient culture in an ancient language, and would you make them so real to us today, so applicable that we hear your Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, whispering inside of us saying, oh, this is for you. And I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, what's going on in these verses of Scripture? Yes, the title is A Seeking After Pleasure, but here's what I think. Solomon is writing about all of his adventures, the first 12 verses of Ecclesiastes 2, and what he's really saying is, I've tried all these things to make connections, and each one of them has failed. And so... The first part of the message is the four ways in which we disconnect, and the second part of the message is the four ways that we do connect. And so as I look at these verses of Scripture, I see four things that Solomon says about disconnecting. There's probably many reasons more of why people have a hard time connecting, but these are the big four. Okay, so let's begin. Why are we so disconnected? Number one. A preoccupation with yourself and what you want. Verse 1, I said to myself, come on, let's try pleasure. Let's look for the good things in life. It's an age-old problem, becoming too self-focused. You know what will keep you and me from experiencing good connections with people? Our preoccupation with ourselves. We want to be the center of our own universe. 
We want to have connection, but we want to have connection with the kind of people that we want to have connection with. We want to connect with people in the way that we want to have connection with people. And we want to connect with people in the location that we want to have connection people with. Because it's really all about us. I mean, we want to connect with people and have meaningful relationships. We just want to do it on our terms. Guess what? If everybody thinks that way, nobody connects. Because you're trying to bring people into your universe, but everybody else is trying to bring people into their universe. And nobody's going into anybody's universes. Here's how it works. Young ladies and gentlemen, if you're hunting for a boyfriend, you'll never find one. And if you're hunting for a girlfriend, you'll never find one. I know it's not politically correct, but men hunt. Right? Men don't know how to really engage like in relationships, so we just keep walking around going, maybe she'll like me, maybe she'll like me, maybe, you know, maybe I can invite her out. You know what I'm saying? And you're lucky enough if somebody actually goes out with you, you know, you gotta fall in love with her because this thing of dating is way too hard. Right? And so what ends up happening though is that the more you search for a relationship and make it about you, the less likely you are to have a relationship because people can smell it. You don't, you don't want to be around someone that is trying too hard. On the other hand, you always want to be around people that are secure in and of themselves and look like they're going someplace and don't look needy. Looking too needy pushes people away from you. Oh, please like me. Please like me. Go on a date with me. Ooh. What is that about? It's about focusing too much on yourself. You don't marry somebody to complete you. Because if you think that way, you're trying to get them to come into your universe to satisfy you. You marry someone because they bring out the best in you and you bring out the best in them and the Lord Jesus Christ is the center of your walk with each other. Those are the kind of marriages that work. Oftentimes, we go hunting for romantic relationships, but it's really actually all about us. That's a mistake. But if we will become less selfish, if we will become less self-focused, if we will get into the sloppy business of building relationships, because relationships at heart are all uh, self-sacrificial, and building relationships are far harder than what we consider them to be. We just think, hey, I'm a nice guy, I'm a nice lady, why wouldn't somebody want to be a friend with me? Well, you know, everybody's got their insecurities and everybody's self-focused, and it's just harder to build relationships. But, if we will walk around in our world saying, how can we bless other people, how can we make a difference in somebody else's life, when we will actually get off of the center of our own story, what ends up happening is, crazy as this sounds, you become extremely attractive. Some of you are just not friend-worthy because you're way too self-focused. You're just focused on yourself. Number two, you know this one's coming. Hurry, hurry, hurry. I've condensed verses four through eight again 
but I still want to read them because I want to make comment about something that I've observed. I also tried to find meaning by building huge homes, plural, planting beautiful vineyards. I made gardens and parks. I built reservoirs to collect the water to irrigate my many flourishing groves. I bought slaves. I owned large herds and flocks. I collected great sums of silver and gold. I hired wonderful singers, both men and women. Now, the reason why I reread these, because I just read them a, a few moments earlier, is I want you to see that here is a person that is running from project to project to project to project. Where's his downtime? There is no downtime. He's building beautiful homes. And now if this is Solomon, that means that all over Israel, he's building these palaces. And I have visited a couple of them. They're in ruins now, but the the extent of how big they are and how lavish they were. It's this whole idea that Solomon's just going from thing to thing to thing, and he really doesn't have any downtime. Hurry sickness kills connecting with the Lord and connecting with other people. In 2007, the Washington Post did a study, and then they published the study about how busy we are. And so they did an experiment. They brought in this violinist into Union Station in Washington, D.C., and had this violinist play for 45 minutes. And what they discovered was 1,000 people passed by in the 45 minutes. Only seven stopped to listen, and they were all children. But the children were yanked away by their parents that were heading off to someplace else, and so they didn't stay that long. What nobody knew was the violinist in the station was the world-famous violinist named Joshua Bell, who was playing eight concertos of Bach that were the most complicated concertos in the world and playing on a $3 million violin. But nobody noticed. Hurry, hurry, hurry. Some of you right now are not even in this room because you're thinking ahead. To something else. Some of you are thinking, wow, the meteorologist says at 3 o'clock the temperature is going to begin to take a drop, and I want to make sure that after, the, after church we have enough time to go out to eat, and I may have to stop at Ross's or Kohl's on the way home. Oh, I need to stop and get gas. And you're someplace else in your head. You are not fully present. And because you're not fully present, you're not able to engage in the moment. And you're always someplace else. Hurry, hurry, hurry breaks vital connections. You don't know the people necessarily around you, or as soon as the benediction is given, we're gone. I get it, but being too busy hurts our connections with other people. Three. Focusing on the wrong stuff. Still the same passage, verses 4 through 8. Just a different way to look at it. We have a tendency to have trouble connecting when we focus on the wrong stuff. Now, 
It's great to have lots of stuff, but more stuff is not where it's at. I read an article this week from Money Watch magazine on, the, the title was, The Dark Side of Why So Many Wealthy People Are Miserable. I knew I would like the article because the first four words begin with this, Mo money, mo problems. <laughs> Here it is. New research shows that the richer we get, the less happy we become. Once we reach a certain household income, $105,000 in the United States, more income tended to be associated with reduced life satisfaction and a lower level of well-being. Interestingly, children who come from affluent families are more likely to suffer from depression, anxiety, and substance abuse than those who came from less affluent families. Now, this is not making the case for being poor. The Bible is very clear in saying it's totally okay to be rich. That's not what this is addressing. This is addressing our mindset toward wealth. It goes on. Three reasons why more stuff doesn't make you happy. Remember, this is this landmark study. Three reasons why more stuff doesn't make you happier. More money, more wants. It's a vicious cycle. People who have means purchase things, and they get into a cycle thinking that they're going to be happier the next thing that they purchase. And then they just keep purchasing more, thinking this is what's really going to make them happy. Oh, man, we've got to, you know, renovate our house, or oh, I'm going to get this car, or oh, I'm going to get this or get that. And it, it, it satisfies for a while, but actually purchasing more creates a hunger inside of you to purchase more. Two, more money, more isolation. The wealthier we get, the less we value social connectedness. And third, more money, more work to maintain what we have. So I always make jokes about my 2000 Toyota Echo. It now has 187,000 miles on it. And I'm praying I get in an accident next week so I can buy another car. But you know, I kind of like my car, and here's why. Because I don't care about it. Somebody hits me, okay. Somebody dings me in the ShopRite parking lot, I'll add it to the several hundred I have. You know what I'm saying? You have a nice car, somebody dings you in the ShopRite parking lot, freak out moment. I can't believe they didn't leave their number. Right? Nothing wrong with houses, but you have two, three houses... Think of the maintenance on those two or three houses, right? And you just get into this cycle of more and more and more. And you would think that more means happy, but more actually means more stress. At least this is what the study shows. Now, amazingly, this study says that there's really two primary reasons for happiness. First is... Doing things we love. Second, doing uh, spending time with people we love. That's it. That, the whole study boils down to those two things. 
which has nothing to do with money. Spending time with people you love and doing things that you love. I think the Bible has something to say about that, right? When Martha told Jesus to tell Mary to get up and help her in the kitchen, Jesus said to her, My dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all of these details. There's only one thing worth being concerned about, and Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken from her. So you see the image, right? Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him, fellowshipping with him, connecting with him. Martha's running around the kitchen. I thank God for the Marthas of life because we'd all starve, right? So don't beat up on Martha too bad. But there's a time and a season for everything, right? Ecclesiastes chapter 3. A time and a season for all things under the sun. Well, there's a time to be bacon, but if the master is in your home, that's not the time to be bacon. It's the time to be connecting with him. We have a hard time connecting when we're focusing on the wrong stuff. We disconnect when our priorities are out of whack. Okay, four. Knowing many, but knowing no one. At the end of verse 8, Solomon almost throws it out as a one-off. He's talking about the gardens and the homes and the people and the wine and all of this. And then he says, oh, and I had many wonderful, I had many beautiful concubines. I had everything a man could desire. Well, you know, in other parts of Scripture, it tells us exactly how many concubines Solomon had, and there were several hundred. In addition to his several hundred wives. In ancient days, it was not uncommon for a king to be with a woman, a different woman, every single day. Every day he was king. Solomon is describing knowing people on the most intimate level possible and still feeling disconnected. How can that be? Because sex never brings connection if there's not a prior relationship of meaning. I think in many ways it's the same in our culture. We just call it Facebook or Instagram. We have 800, 900, 1,000 friends. These are all of our friends. Really? Can you have 800 or 900 friends on Facebook? Really? Relationships are crockpots, not microwaves. The only way you can have a meaningful relationship is low and slow. Okay, first part of the message is done. Second part of the message. I don't care. I I, I don't care that much about reasons for disconnecting. I think there are biblical reasons. I think we need to look at it. What I care about, and I think what you care about is, okay, I got it. Um, I understand. I want to connect better. How does that happen? Four. Disconnect in order to connect. Mark 1.35 
Before daybreak the next morning, Jesus got up and went out to an isolated place to pray. He went out to an isolated place to pray. The disciples come and get him. Basically, they're like, hey, everybody's looking for you. What are you out there in the wilderness praying for? Jesus responds, we must go to the other towns as well, and I will preach to them too, and that's why I've came. So Jesus traveled throughout the regions of Galilee, preaching in the synagogues, casting out demons. Here's here's the pattern of Jesus' life. Here's the pattern of your life. Connect, disconnect. Connect, disconnect. Connect, disconnect. That's exactly what Jesus did his entire ministry. Jesus never ran 24-7. He was never on Facebook till 12.30, getting up at 6.30 in the morning. Okay? He was just simply in this habit pattern of loving people, engaging people, hundreds and thousands of people he engaged with on a daily basis, and yet we keep finding in Scripture he withdrew to a lonely place. He withdrew to an isolated place. We call that today devotions. We call that spiritual retreats. Moments in which we step away and disconnect. So how do we do that? I I, I don't know. Your ways may be different than mine. Here's my list. Turn off all technology while you eat dinner together. Listen, you're sitting down at the table, just everybody turns off their phones, everybody turns off the TV, everybody turns off whatever, get the earbuds out of your ear, and let's actually have dinner together and look at each other. Don't answer any phone calls or texts while you're with someone. Because the message that you're sending is this phone call or text is more important than our engagement at this moment. Go old school and play board games and card games. Just go old school. Do a technology fast. Put your phone on do not disturb mode all day. You won't hear dings or you won't feel a vibration. Don't sleep with any electronics in your room. Don't lay your phone on the table while you're meeting with someone. You ever go out to lunch or breakfast with someone and what you do is you put your phone right on the table? So the whole time you're talking to somebody, you're like... Right? Is it going to ring? The whole time you're talking, you're like, am I going to get a phone call? Bing. Oh, hey. You just said that this is less important than this. That's not connecting. Embrace alone time. So let me flip this whole message and turn it on its side for just a moment. There's nothing wrong with being lonely for a season. I think some of you think that the worst thing that could ever happen to you would be alone or lonely. What I've discovered in my life is that part of the journey of discipleship is God purposely, from time to time, isolates you. He's not doing it to be mean. He's doing it to grow you. And when you find yourself in a lonely spot, we we were never meant to be lonely forever, but there are seasons. When you find yourself in a season of isolation or loneliness, That's where we run to the Lord. And that's where we run to other people in the family of God. That's where we grow. Two, practice the art of real conversation. Ephesians 4.29 says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, 
but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, not your needs, that it may benefit those who listen. In the last 25 years, there's all kinds of studies that are showing that we're becoming less social and more socially awkward. We're not really sure how to have conversations anymore. Let me give you some suggestions. To have a great conversation, listen more than you talk. Just listen more than you talk. Second, genuinely care about the other person that you're engaged in conversation with. Genuinely care. Don't be talking to them and be looking over their shoulder to see the five other people that are passing. Engage. Eye contact. Just just look people in the eye. Be inquisitive. Ask lots of questions. Two kinds of people in the world, right? Extroverts and introverts. Extroverts are the ones that carry the conversation. Introverts are the ones that are happy that the extroverts are carrying the conversation. Because that means you don't have to talk. And if it's focused on you as an introvert, you're like paralyzed. I don't know what to say. So here's what you do. You You stuff in your pocket, emotionally, four or five questions that are always there. Hey, what's the best book you've read recently? Hey, what are you watching on Netflix? Hey, tell me about your kids. Hey, what's the most exciting thing that happened at work this week in your life? Just stuff away four or five questions that you can pull out to engage in conversation. Resist talking about yourself. And a close ally to that is don't hijack the conversation we've all been in conversations where somebody has hijacked the conversation i probably hijacked the conversation from you right so here's how it works you tell somebody about something that's going on in your life and that other person oh oh that exact same thing happened to me let me tell you about the time and then they go off on a 20-minute conversation about what happened to them but you, you were in the middle of a conversation about you now listen as you get older, you begin talking about your health issues. Stop that. Right? Oh, my last colonoscopy. We don't want to hear it. You know what I'm saying? Oh, when, you know, three years ago when I had my colonoscopy, we don't want to hear it. You know what I'm saying? Stop talking about your health issues. I'm just kidding. Okay, just relax. But don't hijack the conversation. Don't one-up. Oh, you think your MRI was bad? back in 82, and then you go off on 20 minutes about your bad MRI, okay? One more thing before, before I move on. I'd like to resurrect the idea of a progressive dinner in our church. Some of you are like, yes. The others of you are like, I have no idea what a progressive dinner is. Okay, this is going back to the 70s, okay? 70s, early 80s. Five or six families would decide, or a small group in church would decide, that they're going to have a progressive dinner. What that meant is you'd probably go to like four or five places. So you'd start off having an appetizer at one person's house. Then you would go and have, you know, the main meal or, or something else at somebody else's house. And then you'd go over and you'd have dessert at somebody else's house. And you'd just kind of work your way around to three to five families. 
And what would happen is you'd have to go into those people's homes, so you just kind of like hung out. But it wasn't like you had to hang out for three hours in their home. You were basically eat your stuff, hang out for a little while, then go to another house. And what would end up happening is, is that there's something about food and fellowship that bonds people. And you, got, you find yourself getting close to people that you had a progressive dinner with. So here's what I think. This is not a church program, but I think that tons of people right now ought to be thinking, I could get together with four or five people or couples, and, and here's what you have to promise me. It won't be fancy. It won't be fancy. You're going to kill it if you spend eight hours working on your meal. You'll do it once every ten years. Right? Don't be fancy. And don't overly clean your house. Because we all know you don't live like that every day. Okay? Just don't overly clean your house. Because here's what happens. We've lost the art of having people over because we're more concerned about the food and the way our home looks than we are actually about the people. And that's a mistake. The church, which is the family of God, we operate differently. Our values are different. The way we talk to each other is different. The way we connect with each other is different. So I'm resurrecting progressive dinners. Number three and four, real quick, how to connect. Slow down. Psalm 37.7 says, Quiet down before God. Be prayerful before Him. Do not bother with people who climb the ladder, who elbow their way to the top. Slow down. Eat slower. Talk slower. Drive slower. Be intentional about breathing. Do not multitask. Find pleasure in small, ordinary things. Four, and this is most important, of the four. If you want to have vital connections, you have to connect better with Jesus. Your relationship with the Lord will thrive the more you press into Jesus and make your relationship with Him a priority. The more you get together with God's people, you know, the more you are in God's Word, the more that you pray, the more that you're connecting with other vital relationships. What ends up happening is the, the more you connect with Jesus, the sidebar of that, or the byproduct of that, the more in love Jesus, the more love Jesus gives you for other people, and the better able to connect with people. Well, I just messed that one up. The better you're able to connect with people as you focus on your relationship with Jesus. I love this, John 14, 26. But when the Father sends the advocate as my representative, that is, the Holy Spirit, He will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I have told you. Jesus had this magnetic personality. And it wasn't because, you know, He was this, you know, ENTJ person, if you're into Myers-Briggs, or He was super sanguine. That's not what was attractive about Jesus. What was attractive about Jesus was that He so loved His Father and He so loved people that even sinners who had no hope, they thought, of redemption, just wanted to be around them. 
Are you the kind of person that the most difficult person or the biggest sinner you can think of would just love having having a dinner with you and spending an evening with you? That's the kind of attraction. So the better you know Jesus, the better he will teach you on how to connect with other people. Okay, so this is the end of the message. And I always think about how should I end particular messages? So here's the way I'd like to end this one. I'd like to end by doing nothing for five minutes. You heard me. Nothing. Slow down. Take five minutes. During that time, you can come to the altar or stay right where you're at. You can bow your heads. You can pray. You can pray for the Warren family. You can pray for yourself. But I'm asking you to slow yourself down. And at five minutes, I'll come back. I'll give a prayer, a benedictory prayer. And then your homework is this. You've got to hug five people on the way out. Right? Hug five people on the way out. And then go home and think about four or five other people or families that you can have a progressive dinner with that's don't have to clean your house all day and it's not fancy. Okay? Five minutes.
Would you stand, please? Our Father, we are living in an age of disconnection, but you've called your family to be different. We ought to be missionaries of connection. When the rest of the world is just falling apart, we ought to be the most bonded people on the planet, thriving in relationships. But somehow, it's not always that way. Would you give us a vision this morning of what it would look like if we really pressed into you and recommitted ourselves to spending large amounts of time with you, Jesus, and sitting at your feet like Mary did, rather than running around like Martha. Help us to connect to our space where you've planted us, the neighborhood that we are in, the town. And would you give us a vision of connecting with each other as the body, the family of God? So that the world would look at us and say, man, they have something that we don't have. And it's not just Jesus, it's the hungering for connection that's being satisfied. We have so much further to go as a family. But help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, homework. Hugging five people and figuring out some people to have a progressive dinner with. God bless you.